This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Cogsy. Cogsy helps modern brands make smarter inventory purchasing decisions that optimize their working capital and frees up cash to fund growth and marketing initiatives. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 71 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Leland Whitehouse, the co-founder and CEO of Slow Up. Based in Brooklyn, Slow Up is the first chef-crafted fresh food bar made with healthy whole food ingredients and delicious spices. In this episode, Leland shares with us his journey from growing up as a kid, being able to identify spices by their scent at just three years old, to studying at Yale, to working as a buyer for Fresh Direct, to moving to Alaska, where he worked at a salmon fishery, to working at a food startup where he got the entrepreneur bug to venture off and start his own company. Leland talks with us about how he debated getting an MBA, how the pandemic changed the direction of his business, and how he's creating a new category in the refrigerated food bar space. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on our new episode releases happening every Tuesday morning. Until then, we hope you enjoy this episode. Leland, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Slow Up. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start. Where are you from originally? Uh, I'm from Ohio. I grew up like in what I think of as the rural suburbs. So like 15 minutes from subdivisions, 15 minutes from cornfields and apple orchards, kind of nice. in that, that little uh, borderline zone. Cool. And what was it like growing up? Did you have siblings? What did your parents do? Kind of paint us the picture of your childhood. The picture. Yeah. So um, I have a little brother uh, and two parents. That's the fam. Uh, we, we, it was a very like outdoorsy childhood. So mm-hmm. grew up like in the woods with a big backyard and a, a big pond. Climbing um, trees. Climbing trees, still nice. a good tree climber, still got it. <laughs> nice. I lost my skill a long time ago. I'm not trying to climb any trees these days. <laughs> yeah, I don't get a lot of action out of it in Brooklyn, where I am now. But um, if, and if it would the look kind of funny, through, <laughs> what's that look, guy doing up there? Yeah, the cops come when you climb trees in in Brooklyn. <laughs> yep. 
just a lot of time outside. My brother and I uh, burned a lot of hours trying to find snakes. Whoa. This was like a, a for many years a favorite activity. But right. um, both of my folks had a big garden, uh, so I spent a lot of time with them as a kid, like holding a trowel, thinking mm-hmm. it was a big shovel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, plucking peas off the vine. There's a great uh, in the the kitchen from my the house I grew up in around like the ceiling uh, my parents had painted this phrase from a country song um, there's only two things that money can't buy true love and homegrown tomatoes so a lot of a lot of that <laughs> nice energy um, and both my parents were big cooks so the like where food comes from the like growing cycle uh, and cooking were like really central to the, yeah. the upbringing. My it sounds dad, like tomatoes to, too. Sounds like you guys really like tomatoes or is that just... Love tomatoes. I have tomatoes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sticking with the family philosophy. We have tomatoes yeah. growing here in the in the backyard. And Wow, Brooklyn. you took that to Brooklyn. You're like still tomatoing up in Brooklyn. Tree climbing and homegrown <laughs> tomatoes. Yeah, nice. making, making it work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so my dad to this day like makes himself three meals a day, maybe twice a month, eats outside of the house. So... Uh, a lot of hours. My mom's a really, my dad's like a good, I say this lovingly, like plumber level cook, like, you know, efficient, healthy, making it happen. My mom uh, was like a, a, a much more talented, fancy pastry, elaborate dinner type of chef. So it was, it was like nice. a real treat when mom made dinner. Nice mix um, though. Got that nice balance, you know, a lot of coverage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, so a lot of time in the kitchen. I will say I will digress one more time with a fun story. One of my favorite games as a little kid was standing on the counter. Um, my dad would pull, well, it's like three, four, five years old before I could read. My dad would pull um, spices out of the cabinet and have me smell them. And I would uh-huh. be like, oregano, paprika. You could you could name them by the scent of them? I I think after a lot of, you know, heavy training. <laughs> right, of course. Uh, <laughs> but still, that's kind yeah. of impressive. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of um a lot of time outside, a lot of time in the kitchen, and both of my folks uh have like a real do it yourself spirit. That's they have had very few bosses between the two of them. All started like multiple small businesses. Um and you know, fix when the when the pipe breaks, we fix it when the stairs need paint we paint them right uh, so got gotta getting the hands dirty a lot of that getting yeah. the hands dirty that's right yeah that's awesome and so what about you know what did you want to be when you grew up like did you kind of see that or when did you realize you wanted to be an entrepreneur yeah I don't think I had like a real clear picture from a kid a lot of flash in the pan ideas um no firefighter no astronaut I wanted to be uh, like a zoologist, I'm very wow. into animals. Uh-huh. The, the, you know, the snakes were like the most readily accessible one, but yeah. it was just, you know, stoked on animals. So there's a, a little bit of that, but um, yeah, didn't have a, a real clear picture of, of what I wanted to do, but did absorb from my uh, folks a want to run my own show, whatever that show yeah. looks like. Right. Um, so tell me how you started. How did tell me your journey for your career journey up until how you, when you decided to start slow up? What were you doing yeah, before? Totally. So it's been uh despite not having like a real quick picture as a kid, it's turned out that that pretty much every job I've had has been 
in the food industry. So it's kind of just taken on some momentum of its own. I went to Yale and arrived really without a clear picture of what I wanted to do. Um, but shortly after arriving, connected with the Yale Sustainable Food Project, which is this awesome organization with a teaching learning farm um, and like a, a steady drip of, of visitors from all over the food industry giving talks and uh, hosting dinners. And I just found a real sort of uh, passion for that world, loved being on the farm. Uh, one of my first, I worked all through college, one of my first jobs was being a pizza chef in the, we had like a wood fired oven on the farm. So we'd reward volunteers for cleaning up the farm or, you know, picking tomatoes by giving them a big yummy pizza dinner. Um, so got the, the food bug there. Yeah. And well, even earlier than that, right. I feel like you were sent, you were smelling spices as like a three-year-old with your yeah, dad. Right. I mean, I think that you had like food in your blood for a very long time. Huh? Maybe. Yeah. Nourished the food bug. Maybe right. it's a better way. There I, mean, you go. I, I yeah. discovered that there was actually maybe some work to be done uh -huh. with this whole spice smelling uh, right. talent of mine. <laughs> um, Put that to work. That's right. Uh, so in the summers I worked on, uh, worked on a farm, worked on a ranch, helped run some farmer's markets in DC and just was slowly and steadily building both an interest and a, an understanding of how the food system was put together. Uh, my first job out of college was at Fresh Direct, which is a big, what well, I think really the first mover in the e-commerce grocery yeah, definitely. biz. Um, and I hooked up with them at a really exciting time where they were, they'd been around for like maybe 10 years, but people were just starting to get used to ordering things online. Uh, and specific, you know, ordering food online really was a, a novel idea, but they were growing like crazy. And um, so I was a, the local and organic produce buyer at Fresh Direct, which is a pretty cool gig. Yeah, that um, sounds pretty cool. So how, what is it like to be a buyer? So you were on the other end, basically of where you are in a way, like on the other side of the table. Totally. Yeah. It, uh, helpful, helpful background. You know, I get to, yeah. get to kind of speak the lingo. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, I mean, it was cool. I was like 22, didn't know anything, uh, right. but had a lot of control over what was for sale on Fresh Direct, which is like really exciting for me at the time. And, mm -hmm. and is now sort of informative as we think about, uh, who the decision makers are at, at yeah. the place that we're trying to sell into. It's like probably a 22 year old who just, you know, get a, one good phone call <laughs> might unlock a, a pretty big new account. Um, so yeah, to the, to the good, uh, you know, I could, I could uh, tune into a local farm that I was really excited about and work, you know, work the system and get them set up as a vendor and, and put them for sale on fresh direct and really kind of like transform you know, transform the zucchini sales for a New Jersey zucchini farm or uh, bring in some, some spinach that I thought was like the most delicious spinach I'd ever tried from some little place in uh, Western Mass or something like that. So yeah, uh, that, was, that was like a really exciting part of the job. And it also made it clear that the incentives to uh, a buyer in that position are intention with exciting projects like launching a new small farm on a, on a site like Fresh Direct. So, you know, the, what made my job easy was like 
everything arrives on time. Everything's super well documented. Um, the every zucchini is the same size that we don't have to scrap any of it because it's all, you know, totally uniform. That's just not how it works to run a small farm. Uh, and so it was a, you kind of take on some, some risk and some complexity by gambling on a, a little farm you're excited about instead of buying, you know, buy the pallet load from a huge commodity farm in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a night, that was like a little, little light bulb, uh, little, you know, park that in the, in the memory bank, like, oh, there's some structural stuff here working against mm. small players and small farms. Interesting. Yeah. So what happened after Fresh Direct? Where were you, uh, what'd you do next? Yeah, so the the first thing that happened after Fresh Direct was I decided that I really didn't like living in the big city. So I uh, drove to Alaska and worked on a salmon boat for a while. Uh, wow, so, uh, Alaska? Alaska, yeah. That is sounds very cold. So what was it like being <laughs> in Alaska? I mean, I don't even think I've met or talked to anybody who's even ever been there, to be honest. <laughs> Got it. Well, it's a big, you know, it's a big place. So there's like the, I think I'm going to bungle this and do not have the data in front of me, but it's something like, it, it's like most of the Eastern US or at least the North, it's like as big as the Northeast, mm-hmm. at least possibly bigger. So super Northern Alaska, frozen all the time. I was in very Southeast Alaska. So it's like basically like a, like a cold rainforest. Wow. Um, was it and, literally like snowing all the time or like <laughs> you kind of, I feel like it's like sheets of ice everywhere. You see polar bears walling, walking around like, <laughs> no, you know? it's more like, it's more like picture, like, like really, really middle of freaking nowhere, Seattle. Like it's more, more like the, more like the Pacific Northwest where I was. Right. So I was like a four ride, four hour boat ride from a, like a grocery store. Um, We'll keep it tight here on the Alaska portion, yeah. but it's a really, it's one of the few truly sustainable fisheries in the world, mm. um, really heavily regulated and also lots and lots of very small producers um, or, you know, fisher, fishermen yeah. uh, that are totally, that are reliant on the commodity market. So you can go out in your little skiff and you catch thousand pounds of salmon. The buyer is like trident seafood, which is, playing these big commodity markets. So it was both like really cool kind of adventure. Some, I grew like a crazy beard. You were out on, (laughs) you got into character, like full on. You're on the boat. I was doing the whole whole thing. Really like shaking, just shaking Brooklyn off of my, (laughs) off of my skin. Um, But it was great. It was, it was another like little small light bulb. Um, These fishermen are working so hard doing a really complicated, tricky job to harvest these salmon. And, uh, you know, one summer, the price per pound of coho salmon might drop to like 15% of what it was last year because there's some glut in the market in China. Or, you know, some of these like global forces really hit home uh, in a, a small fishery. So I, anyway, I got, my, I got my yayas out, got out of Brooklyn, Grew my yes. beard, shaved it off, got a nice little education in another corner of the food system, uh, and then came back to Brooklyn. Just came so back. So, what made you come back? You're like, this beard's not working for me anymore. Maybe well, it's a little I came cold. back and everybody had a beard too. You know, this is a <laughs> right. Really it was like you fit right in. It. The hipster movement was there. It was, yeah, it was up and honking big time. What year I, was uh, this? 2015. Yeah, that's like. 
That's like prime hipster time. Prime. prime. They were taken <laughs> over. Uh, the, I mean, the, the real answer is, is that um, is kind of twofold. One was having been that like isolated and remote in Alaska, I got this really new deep appreciation for being close to the people that I loved. And so many of them were in the Northeast. So I just wanted to like be around my people. Mm -hmm. uh, but also I, just, I had a, I had developed a pretty good network having worked at Fresh Direct of, the, of people in the food industry. And so it was just where the job opportunities that I was excited about were happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I came back and uh, joined a, what was at the time tiny company uh, called Happy Valley Meat. Uh, it was a sustainable, super ethical, transparent meat wholesaler. So we'd buy uh, cattle from just beautiful, great little farms in uh, Pennsylvania and sell them to the fanciest restaurants in the city. So I was the, I was the, um, there had been two co-founders. One of them had quit. So it was just me and the founder, uh, for the, for a couple of years after that. Um, so I felt, you know, feel like. Yeah. I felt like my, a co-founder, huh? Yeah. I felt like <laughs> co-founder. It was my sweet little company. And, yeah. um, it's just like a, from a values perspective, a completely unimpeachable business. Just the meat was unbelievable. The we were, you know, paying well above market price. Like I, like I mentioned with the salmon fishermen, same deal yeah. with, with cattle. Like you're really uh, kind of riding the market price of your, of the, of the cattle you raise. So you spend two years raising a cow. Turns out it's worth half as much as you thought when you got it started. And we uh, could pay a consistent rate year over year above market price and really like encourage these farmers to keep doing the, the good things they were doing to keep the cattle happy and the meat tasty. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're still so, killing them at like two years old. Basically it's like the lifespan. That's, that's what, that's what they do. Yeah. To, I yeah. think it's funny because yeah. a lot of people think like, Oh yeah, they just kill the cows when they're like old and gray, you know, it's like, nah, they're kind no, of babies. Yeah. There's they're not, babies. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're big. <laughs> yeah. They're big babies. They're like, you know, thousand pound babies, but uh, right, they is, look big. Yeah. That's like when they just, I guess, hit their stride and how big they're going to get. And they just hit that mark. And it's like, all right, time to get you. Time to like, eat you. Time to yeah. get it. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a cool, I'll, I'll, I got a lot of thoughts about the meat industry, but the, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was, very, it was very cool to um, be like that intimately involved in a scrappy early business that was really values driven. And yeah. it was a, a quick education in, you know, on a team that small, everybody does a little bit of everything, which I really mm -hmm. dug. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, every day was a little different. I was officially the sales guy. So did a lot of like, uh, you know, sneaking into the service door in restaurants, trying to get a sous chef to stand still long enough to find a new meat vendor. Um, nice. But also, you know, you kind of touch every little part of the business. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really exciting. And then another little kind of like park it in the back of my mind for when it's ultimately time to start my own thing. Mm -hmm. um, there was a really like live and interesting tension between staying completely committed to like a really strict set of rules and values and ethics and uh, growing quickly. Those in the meat industry, I mean, with the meat company? The, yeah, I think yeah. with the meat company, but, but I think, yeah, in, in general, you know, the, um, the, the, Happy Valley Meat has since scaled quite a bit, but um, 
you know, not compromising on a extremely rigorous vetting process for a new farm, for instance, really just made for like slow incremental year over year growth, which uh, was like one way to run a business, but I found myself kind of like uh, impatient for, for this to really scale and get big and grow and for the, the some portion of the values that were the fundamentals for that business to have some weight and leverage that could of the variety that you really want to get once there's once it's a bigger company. So another another kind of like Take we're going to eventually talk yeah. about slow up here, but the, uh, the these are all learnings along the, the way. Yeah, super important. Sure. Yeah. And so what happened? I mean, this sounds like an incredible insight. You know, you're kind of like the right hand man there to the co-founder, um, and that's really incredible insights in building a company. You get to see a lot and do a lot. Um, is that kind of where you got the bug to start your own thing? Like, hey, I want to do this too. Yeah, I think, you know, I had that from the spice smelling days, a little bit of like, eventually <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get my own thing off the ground. Um, but yeah, that that experience really did make me feel both like, oh, I see how this works. You know, I see mm -hmm. how I see how somebody can put together a real functioning grown up business. Right. Uh, and also, it's if, it, if I'm going to do this, it's uh, much more exciting to do it according to my own like appetites and disposition and, mm -hmm. and ambition for scale and growth. So yeah, got, got the bug and, and also got the kind of confidence yeah. from that, from that role to say like, all right, this, yeah. you know, I, I, I can do this. something like that. Yeah. We'll get right back to our show, but first a word from our sponsors. Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? And during Black Friday or Cyber Monday, that can sometimes double? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive and managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash CEO. That's G-O-M-A. L-O-M-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Nosto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nosto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. Cogsy empowers modern brands to be more agile and adaptive when it comes to their inventory. Leverage Cogsy's prioritization, predictive analytics, and automated purchase flow to always have the right stock on hand at the right time. 
Not only that, but Coxie has an innovative plan B for those times when you do run out of stock. You can run back orders that keep customers happy and beat the conversion rate of back-in-stock notifications. Get your first two months free when you sign up by going to cogsy.com slash stairway to CEO. That's C-O-G-S-Y dot com slash stairway to CEO. For some people, including myself, it really is so helpful to kind of see how it looks first and then be like, yeah. oh yeah, I can do that too. I mean, I, I have a similar story with, you know, starting my company Wear Away. Um, I had the idea and I was like, oh, I really want to do this, but I actually don't know if I can pull this off. Like I'm never even, yeah. I don't even know any entrepreneurs, you know? Um, and so I ended up, you know, getting a, an associate role in a, an accelerator here in Los Angeles, like basically begging for the job and telling the guy like, listen, I'll show up on my Monday. If you hate me, you can send me home. I'm going to work for free. Just let me in here. I'm going to do as much as I can to help out. And I'm just want to learn and, and provide value. And thank God that's a good hustle. That's oh yeah. Hustle. Oh, I'm full of freaking hustle stories over here, but <laughs> you know, this is your time, not mine. But anyways, um, yeah, but so I got the job, you know, after proving myself quite a bit. Um, but I got to see other entrepreneurs in this accelerator. And right. I was like, wow, yeah, these are amazing founders. They're cold calling. They're doing all this stuff I've done like 10 years ago. This is amazing. This is who I am. I'm an entrepreneur. Wow. I'm going to go start this now, you know? So it's just that totally. little boost of confidence. I think that putting yourself in the right environment can provide that's crucial and it really can move the needle. So actually to anybody listening, if you're nervous or if you're thinking about starting a company or doing something, get a job at a startup super early, you know, get into an environment where you can see other entrepreneurs or commute, join communities where you can talk to other founders and start understanding and, and getting that insight. And you'll build that confidence, I think, fairly quickly. Definitely. And, you know, I, I, there was a, a moment there where I'm like, do I need to go to business school? Just, <laughs> I think everybody asks that, right? Because you think you totally. have to. It's like, I need to, I must need some kind of prerequisite, you know, certification here to run a company. And yeah. an MBA sounds like a good job. Um, a, a good, you know, thing. Did you end up doing that or what path did you take? No, did not do that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I dropped I out like, of college and my bachelor's, so I didn't even finish that, but <laughs> definitely yeah, not needed, not needed. No, not needed. Yeah. I mean, I, where I shook out was like, I, you know, left that neat job. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm game for something. Let's, you know, yeah. Where, where, where do I, where do I put this drive? And for me, luckily, well, I guess I'll say two things. One was by the time I had sort of gotten my teeth into an idea for a business, the decision between like, should I go to business school first or just jump in the cold water here and, and figure it out? Uh, felt in that moment, like, well, I could pay a bunch of money to right. learn some like indeterminate right. thing, or I could just get my ass in the cold water uh -huh. and, and uh, not go into debt and get a crazy education in oh my the meantime, gosh. whether this achieves liftoff or not. Yeah, I have to say, I'm very strongly opinionated about this. I think that starting a company is enormously valuable. I mean, obviously, I can't compare it to an MBA because I haven't gone to get that yet. But I definitely right. think that you learn so much through the experience that I can't imagine how you can be taught that in school. I really don't know, because the experiencing it yourself is just so different than reading it in a book. Totally. And the, I mean, this is, this is maybe putting the cart in front of the horse, but the uh, among the like central experiences of, of running slow up for me has been this like constant 
context switching all day long. Like you're a marketer in the morning and then you're balancing the books and then you're a sales guy. And then you're like right. trying to build management, you know, structure. Are we using the right platform <laughs> to, to right. you know, handle our tasks? It's very hard to imagine uh, getting, you know, building that muscle in, right. in business school. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's a muscle. You're right. That's a really interesting way to put it. It's definitely a muscle and you don't really get to exercise it. You kind of, it's like reading about the muscle. It's like reading about going to the gym and the benefits totally. <laughs> or just get your ass in the gym. You know, I wish that shit would work. <laughs> read about the gym. <laughs> right. Can I just lose weight reading about working out instead of just going oh, and doing it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, 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 um, the other thing that really was helpful and we'll find, we'll hit the slow up chapter here now. Yeah. Uh, my college roommate, um, while I had been meandering around the food system, uh, he had been a consultant working for some of the biggest food companies in the country. So he worked on projects for Pepsi and Kraft and some of these other huge CPT companies mm -hmm. and, uh, was in a similar moment in his life, kind of ready to get something off the ground, getting curious, getting yeah. kind of fired up about uh, starting his own thing. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, having th his background made me feel a lot more confident that right. like, wh where I was thin around, no idea how fundraising works, consumer strategy, what is that? Had not really <laughs> touched, touched brand before. Um, so finding a, a co-founder who uh, really was thick where I was thin. Yeah. And uh, he was your roommate from Yale? Yeah. He was, my, we met each other like a week into Yale. Um, and had been buddies, you know, have been buddies ever since, but, uh, yeah. yeah, first maybe five days in he's a, he's a, he's a big dog. He's a seven foot tall vegetarian with nice. like big hair and a beard. He's very <laughs> easy to spot. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So right. Old, old friend, but had, had, traveled down a, a path that wound up being a really good kind of yin to my yang. Mm -hmm. in, in yeah. Complimentary skills. That's great. Totally. Yeah. That definitely helps. Uh, when you can fill holes early on in the process of building a company, it definitely builds confidence in the, just yeah, in general. Time. Um, yeah. so what were some of the first, so how did you come up with the idea? The first idea was like, I'm going to start something here. Right. And then the second idea, um, really started from, uh, some conversations with Jeremiah, my co-founder. Mm -hmm. uh, we were excited about starting a food company and kind of batting around, what, smelling for an opportunity. Right. And uh, both of us really felt like we like there's something in snacking. Like there's a there's there's some there's some room in that category to improve. And that really came from this conviction we both had that we were really excited about what we could make or buy uh, at mealtime, like healthy. We're both, you know, like not fitness freaks, but trying to, try to, try to live past 60, you know, we're close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're like, there's a, you can get like a really delicious, thoughtfully prepared, healthy lunch. It both living in Brooklyn, like, just you fall out the front door and there's a, some great options there. But in between meals, I was living on like fistfuls of almonds and hummus 
and uh right he's he's like you know enormous vegetarian so it's hard to feed that engine period but you know protein bars and eggs only go so far that's funny i'm vegetarian uh, by the way <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah. it, well so you, you know some of the sort imagine if you're twice as big as you are it uh it really, yeah it, i got a pack you of gotta think about food all day long oh, yeah yeah, sure. yeah yeah um and so we just we thought like there what is the deal with the distance between how satisfying and exciting meals are and mm-hmm. what we're living on in between meals? Right. Um, so that, that was the, that's kind of like the initial inkling. Um, and then true to kind of consultant form, we went out and interviewed, I think 200 people about their uh, snacking habits. So had a you know, list of seven or eight questions and got this really validating signal that we were not alone in our dissatisfaction with, with what was happening between meals. Uh, and specifically, we heard over and over again that options that were healthy weren't tasty, and that options that were tasty weren't particularly healthy, and that everything had too much sugar. This was right. like a lot of dissatisfaction, and the nature of the dissatisfaction was pretty clear. Um, so that smelled like a business mm-hmm. to us, you know? And uh, you're like, is this oregano or is this a business? This is a business <laughs> idea. Sniffing <laughs> <laughs> around. That's right. No, this is not oregano. <laughs> this is the real deal. Basil. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, so then we, we've quickly got a chef involved, uh, somebody I'd known from my kind of previous food days, Caroline. Uh, she'd been a restaurant chef for about 10 years. And we started poking around for like, how do how can we break this healthy, tasty compromise in between meals? And uh, one of the, so this is again, like classic consultant process. We're like, is there, what's the idea? Is there a market opportunity? Like, is there a problem we can solve? Yes. Why has this problem not been solved yet? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the answer to that question we found after digging around a little bit was, uh, was shelf life. So it was, was kind of like, this is a, a big theme of what's happening at Slow Up, but a huge, like, I don't know, 90, 95% of, of what people are traditionally snacking on is reverse engineered from, if not shelf stability, something very close to shelf stability. So, you know, for, uh, we can maybe dig into this, but your life gets a lot, this actually ties back into that one of those insights from Fresh Direct that like the incentives for a buyer right. are uniformity and ease and mm-hmm. shelf life, all these yeah. things. Right. Like, that aren't we do really, to just like, yeah. Right. That aren't about like, is Health. this delicious? <laughs> yeah. Is this healthy? Is this good for the planet? Is this right. good for somebody's body? It's like, mm-hmm. how do I not, how does this not turn into a headache? Right. Um, and we're like, you know, we're, we're kind of game for that headache. Let's mm-hmm. let's bite off that headache and see if we can create something that's closer to the experience that we get when you sit down with a knife and fork and have a meal. So with with that, like, why hasn't it been solved? Shelf life. We really felt like we had a, a business there. And then we just turned Chef Caroline loose and said, make something healthy and delicious that feels like a recipe, not a formula, or feels mm-hmm. like a, like it came to real you from food. a chef. Yeah, real food. Yeah. Um, 
and you know you can get re- you can eat a an apple and that's real food in between meals but for something that's like thoughtfully prepared right uh, that's got you know some some balanced flavors mm-hmm. uh, you do kind of need a, a chef involved so that's the the nucleus is that breaking that healthy tasty compromise met using fresh ingredients like you would at a restaurant or in your own kitchen yeah and coming up with a product that felt like a like a recipe not like an extruded it really uh, is too i mean so how do you describe it it's kind of like a quinoa bowl in a bar basically right it's like a very healthy is that how you (laughs) (laughs) No, it is it's like real food it's like you don't have i mean who has time to make quinoa anyways or like or you know and all these important nutritious you know veggies it's it takes a lot of time to make that i mean i certainly don't have time i end up skipping the meal instead but this is such a great way to just grab the bar and there you go you've got all of these healthy nutritious um vegetables in one thing um in the flavors you have are pretty interesting. How did you tell us about the product development process? You know, like what was it like trying to come up with those specific flavors that you launched with and how many iterations did you go through to, to get to the right recipe? Uh, million is probably an overstatement, but a whole lot. Uh, yeah. So the, you know, we, we, hopefully we started, uh, this is, this has been an education for me in not saying like, here's a delicious thing, how do we take it to market? But instead, like, here's a market, how do we make something to address it? Um, and so we started with that, like, it's gotta be healthy, it's gotta be delicious, and you gotta be able to eat it like with one hand without spending yeah. 45 minutes making quinoa. Right. Um, and uh, so the, the, you know, that's kind of premise one. And then where we started was like the, the base. So the, they're all of our bars now, we have eight flavors, a couple more coming down the pike, but they all start with uh, chickpeas, quinoa, nuts, and egg, uh, which is a really nice, neutral, naturally nutrient-rich, satisfying, like healthy fats, slow-burn carbs, a yeah. lot of protein in there. Mm-hmm. But you can take that base and... We, we have sweet flavors and savory flavors. You can, you can start with that and kind of go anywhere. So that was the yeah. next stage gate was like, how do we build uh, a foundation on top of which we can build a lot of beautiful flavors? Yeah. Um, so we, yeah, we played around with a handful of different uh, formulations, but landed on that, that base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, you know, the, the quick version is like made it in the kitchen had our friends try it they spit out the first four versions then they stopped (laughs) spitting it out we said okay maybe we're in the neighborhood here uh and uh and then what got to a place where we could where caroline really could just turn loose and say like here's a dish that i love and i think i can adapt it on top of this base so some of our helpful to maybe get some some flavors in mind so some of our most popular flavors are red pepper pesto and poblano black bean um, and Calabrian chili lemon. Those are the, 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 of the savory flavors. Those are the ones that, that people connect most with. So that's, that's like, you take the base and then add fresh basil and roasted red peppers and oregano and rosemary and, uh, sea salt and olive oil and things that you would like pull out of your pantry and make like a quick, healthy, yeah. delicious meal with. Yep. That was the initial 
process. So when so what happened after that? So you so you guys realized, okay, we've got this amazing flavors, we're ready to roll, you know, talk to me about your strategy for going to market. You know, I know you sell online, I know you're also in retailers, you want to tell us a little bit about how all of that kind of came together? Yeah, it's been a go to market strategy wise has been a kind of a interesting ride. So our the, the first big bright idea was uh, like the moment in which this problem is the most acute for the consumer who we're solving it for uh, is it's like 2 p.m. You're at your desk and your options are like leave the building, go to Sweet Green, pay 15 bucks, have a salad, come back or go raid the office commissary and like just have a bunch of find. potato chips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, yeah. Right. And inhale three kind bars and, and <laughs> move right. on to the, your back to the spreadsheet. Um, so our, we did a couple of like test run uh, trials in, in offices. And then that was, that was our, that was our big plan. Like we're going to launch exclusively in offices. We're going to corner this market. We're going to like really build out, the machinery to sell in effectively to offices. We're going to get the right COVID distributors hit. for offices. And then effing <laughs> COVID hit. Yeah. Uh, so we did, we got some really good, we've had about four months in what we now think of as like a trial period. Um, so we were in Facebook and about 50 other bit, you know, offices in Manhattan, Brooklyn. We were the fastest moving with like no brand awareness, just like park these things in the fridge. Yeah. Uh, see what people do with them. Fastest moving stack at Facebook, fastest moving stack at a bunch of other, like we're wow. in the top three at all of these people really, we like clearly were connecting. Oh man. So you like totally proved concept in the workplace. <laughs> oh, and I can't tell you, we're, we're getting back into this, into this channel as soon as people start going back to work, which seems right. like they're tr trickling in, but right. the number of bars that get eaten at of Facebook in a week is like, all the Whole Foods in the Northeast. And it's like wow. crazy, crazy volume. Wow. So we're like, oh my God, we're like, we're, we're on this, this rocket ship is taking off, baby. <laughs> um, and then the pandemic hit. So we're, we're like, okay. Oh no. Luckily we had enough, we had done a round of fundraising to like allow, allow us to take the product to market, had enough flexibility from a cash perspective to like take a breath, throw a tarp over the company, see what happens next let the storm come through everybody took we take a nap you know make try and figure out whether we're what is co anyway this yeah. is you know like april 2020 was a heady month yeah and then what we what where we landed was you know like the the problem is that i like to say like same problem different fridge is where we landed so people weren't going to work anymore but still there's you know there are like three weeks there where everybody's making quinoa every day and like yeah. cooking salmon out of a cookbook for lunch and totally living on this, you know, but I imagine with everybody, dough. right, right. Well, people were like cooking at home, but I also think that there must've been, and I'm sure you discovered this, that people working from home and watching their kids at the same time, they actually don't have any time to cook anything, right? There's like definitely people, a segment for that. Yeah. We got this great, uh, uh, you know, a few months into having launched the, the quick version is that we, launched D to C that, that was the, that was the channel strategy switch. We got this great, uh, email from one of our customers who said like, I barely have time to pee, let alone make lunch. So this right. is a, 
godsend. So, you know, we, we, uh, we found like, yeah, people are still sick of doing dishes, don't have enough time to make something healthy and tasty mm-hmm. and are raiding their home pantry instead of the office commissary and still like, it's like cold leftovers or potato chips, you know? Right. Um, so we pivoted to direct to consumer, took us, you know, through the summer into the early fall of last year to just get that stood up, you know, so it's same, you know, same product, same problem, same consumer, completely different business. Yeah. distribution. Uh, in yeah. every other way, distribution. Yeah. And like, you, you know, instead of trying to sell to an office manager, we're now running digital ads. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we like optimize our digital advertising? How do we, we trained, we switched to a new manufacturer. We lots, so a lot of, you know, big, Changes, big switch yeah. there. Um, officially launched the company, like we, the slow up as it exists now, uh, last October. So having done the switch, set up the DC business, figured out how to, you know, run an online food yeah. company, launched in October. And since then have, have been focused on DTC, but in the last couple of months, uh, we really think that the future for us is in retail. Right. Uh, which again is like a, a pretty brand new supply chain, you got to kind of rebuild the machine again. Absolutely. Uh, and I know you so, guys are in 50, you know, independent retailers, mostly in the New York area you mentioned, and also in Fairway. What was it like, you know, now you're really at the other side of the table, you're trying to sell into these grocery stores. What has your experience been and any insights you have now that you're uh, you're the founder? Totally. Yeah. You know, I've kind of cheated uh, and hired <laughs> the, a killer sales guy. That's, nice. That was, you know, so we spent a lot of effort laying the sort of like operational groundwork to be ready to serve retail, but you just can't, um, I have found the like speed to scale is just way quicker with somebody with relationships. So this, this, uh, his name's Dave. He's a, he's a killer. He's a sweetheart. Um, but he had, uh, worked at a, has been in the food industry for like 20 years, had been um, the, had run sales for another refrigerated bar company, which is like, wow. Uh, like there's, there's another like, one. There's like, there's like five of them in the world. So it's a right. unicorn snag. Wow. Uh, so, but, but apart unicorn from the total snag. hack. <laughs> <laughs> I love that unicorn snag. That's um, good. What is it like selling in the free or the, you said refrigerator department as a bar, you know, our, our retailers totally. like, where do we put you in this store? Yeah. There's, I, there's kind of two answers there. One is that uh, perfect bar has done us a big service by kind of establishing the, the fact of a refrigerated bar. So, right. you know, super quick shorthand is like what, wherever you put the perfect bar, that's where we belong. Um, <laughs> that's nice they paved the way for you it's it's funny because yeah. it sometimes really pays a lot uh of dividends to not be first to market um because then totally. you basically get to ride the tail of what's what was before you so yeah totally yeah yeah so they're, they're honestly they're like i had a, i have not yet like called the perfect bar people to thank them but they both they <laughs> you can like, give them a shout out right now <laughs> there you go if you're listening perfect bar thank you so much uh because they're both they like establish the category. So buyers have some familiarity with like, okay, it's a refrigerated bar. We've got some data on velocity. We've got some understanding of where it goes in the, in the store. 
Um, also, Perfect Bar got bought for an enormous amount of money, which has helped us on the fundraising side to say, like, you know, this is right. somebody, some people made this work big this. time. Right. Yeah. Um, it worked. Look. Totally. Uh, but we're, you know, so again, like going back to my kind of buyer days, the dual incentives are like, can we, what can we do to make this refrigerator more exciting? Like, what can we do to delight our customers with something they've never seen before? Solving a problem that is as yet unsolved. That's, you know, that's like a big part of the mandate. And then the other part is like, how do I avoid the headache? And so we, we uh, our, what we're working on and, you know, have logging some big wins is how do we make it like the most exciting, delightful opportunity and kind of shrink the headache. Uh, it's early days in retail. So we're still figuring out like exactly what's clicking and connecting. We're running a bunch of in the, these independent retailers are like a really cool test for us to say like, uh, you know, over here we're we're in the produce section and we're at three ninety nine, and we've got this kind of shelf hanger and over here we're, you know, um, so get, so get you guys our, are in different places and different grocery stores. Is that what you're saying that the, the bar kind of fits in multiple places? Yeah. So, you know, home base is like I say, right next to the perfect bar, which is like the grab and go cooler where there's some beverages and there's some bars and maybe like in the bottom there's cut sandwiches and chicken salad and that kind of right. thing. Um, but part of our, we really think of ourselves as, as despite riding on the refrigerated bar coattails as creating a new category. It's a, it's an unfamiliar product. Uh, that really does only resembles a, a bar in its shape, really not in its experience. And so uh, getting creative around where we belong in the grocery store and who the right buyer is and who the right distributors are is, is part of the project. Um, and so we really think we're really excited about the produce section. Actually, there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's no bars in there now, but it really does feel like a more natural home for us. This is what the, what the bars are made of is yeah. what they're like surrounded by in the, yeah. in the produce section. And once it's in the produce section, it's like full, full circle for you, right? <laughs> right back. That's right. Right back where I belong. Totally. <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, so what has been one of the biggest challenges that you've faced in building this company and how have you overcome it? Yeah. There's a couple, but the, the, the ongoing biggest challenges are, is, uh, our shelf life. So we're, we're, uh, it's, it's fresh. And like I say, a lot of the industry is structured. There's a real headwind against. Right. What is like the shelf say, life? Uh, two and a half weeks. So it's. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty tough. Well, then it, it makes it's sense tight. it's in produce, right? Cause it's. That's the plant. Yeah. That's it. And it, uh, you know, we're making, we're doing what we can to, to, move that you know every day matters so we're, we're we're working on on that but we still we like to say good food goes bad yeah um, it's true and it's just the truth that that yeah. like if you think about the stuff that naturally lasts months and months in the fridge or out of the fridge it's a right. really it's either a nut <laughs> or something dry you know or spaghetti yeah or it's packed full of nonsense that makes it artificially last that long right um so it's it's both like has unlocked chef Caroline to say like, just make it delicious, uh, use whole fresh ingredients, you know, think about the produce section, not the middle of the store. Um, but 
with, you know, at each turn, there's a lot of downstream consequences of having a, a perishable product. Um, so we, we've overcome it in a dozen little ways and we'll continue to overcome it in dozens more little ways at each, at each turn, whether it's like get, you know, getting out of the grab and go cooler and focusing on the produce section or finding ways to, uh, in a margin positive way, deliver these to somebody's house. To, right. Um, what advice do you have in terms of fundraising? You know, I think there's so many, you know, entrepreneurs that want to start a food company uh, or CPG and they're like, I need money. I've got this idea. What advice do you have about the journey and fundraising for an early stage food company? Totally. Um, well, I love, I, somewhere I heard, uh, Peter, the founder of RX Bar, tell the story of his really early days. Uh-huh. And he, he went to his dad. He's like, I got this idea. I'm going to fundraise. And his dad said, like, sell a thousand bars. Exactly. And then come talk to me. Uh, and I, that does, that feels like really resonant. Like, go out there, hustle a little bit, get some of these things made, get your hands dirty, like root around in the process. Yeah. Don't just like call up your 20 richest friends and see if you can shake them down for a little bit of cash. Uh, uh, so that, Try to prove it out before you lose everyone's money, you know? Like, right, yeah, just, <laughs> that's right. Or just, I always say, do everything you can by yourself or with your co-founders until you absolutely need money and you can't move any further. Because there's totally. so much you can do. Doing a pitch deck is a very small kind of thing you can do on a weekend. You know, you got to like get your hands dirty, like you said, invest your time, invest whatever money you can and just prove it out. Get people to even, you know, like you said, you interview 200 people. I mean, that's like proving it's de-risking. There's got to be a process right. of de-risking your startup before you ask for money. Totally. And then I think like in dovetailing into that, uh, I will say that, so my co-founder, we, we raised a couple rounds of capital now. He, this is a separate story, but he, he kind of ran the first rounds. And now I just, in the last couple of months, have done my, my first kind of run around the mulberry bush uh, <laughs> fundraising. And something that I've been really grateful for is um, we, we, we have this network of investors that really are excited about the product, get the mission, are... Uh, understanding that we're trying something really ambitious and new, but it gives me, I like sleep a lot better at night having made uh, commitments that I really feel like I can keep. Mm-hmm. And so I like to, in the fundraising department, it's really attractive to say like, we're going to be a hundred million dollar company in, in 15 minutes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. um, tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow. Yeah. And so I, the, like just not writing a check that your butt can't cash feels uh, like a, a gift that keeps on giving both in the kinds of investors that, that mm. you can attract yeah, and in just the like middle of the night, wake up anxiety, like this growth, this sport, <laughs> the hockey sick is not steep enough. I have to send uh, my investor update this month. What the hell am I going to yeah. say? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, kind of own where you, what, how you want to grow your business you're saying and, and kind of stick to it. And that will help you attract the right investors that are the right fit instead of trying to compromise and, and try to attract investors that probably aren't the right fit just for the sake of getting a check. Right. Yeah. Like get a handle on the business first and then mm-hmm. get a handle on what you think you can deliver. Yep. And then 
get take that and then make the slide deck. <laughs> you know? Right, right. The deck should be like the last thing, maybe almost. Right. Or you're kind of making yeah. it as you go along, I feel like, because you're learning along the way and then you kind of can put real numbers down a little bit instead of complete assumptions. Totally. With I guess I, one other quick thing that has been like a continually constructive for us is like starting the conversation really early with potential investors and yeah. asking like, what do you, what do you want to see? What would make this feel like a really, I love the daily harvest story about like, what, what do I, what do you need to see in a slide deck that would make you chase me out into the parking lot? Uh, and like, yeah. give me a check in my car, you know, the, the, that like feedback collection from your, the audience you're going to be courting has been uh-huh. really orienting for us uh, yeah. and helps, it helps establish, um, I guess maybe not everybody's listened to every episode here, but that, that, uh, of the stare of my podcast. Yeah. Well, hopefully well, now they have to, now they're going to have to go tune dig in through, dig back dig through, back through <laughs> to the daily harvest episode, um, with the founder and CEO. Yeah. She's had some amazing, um, advice. So thanks for bringing that up, but yeah, yeah that's totally, that's exactly what you need to do. If you're fundraising, um, is ask what they want to see. Cause it is really kind of different for every business. And, um, it definitely helps guide you as a founder. Um, totally. Yeah. And they, these investors have seen so much many more businesses than I have seen. Yes. And the, the reason they want to see these benchmarks hit or these proof points addressed Mm-hmm. is not arbitrary it's like right. this is these are indicated these are like whatever the opposite of the canary in the coal mine is <laughs> like <laughs> right. this is the these are indicators of uh yeah. it's working so come back right. when you can show us those uh yeah. those metrics yeah. absolutely um and building that relationship like you mentioned is extremely important before you need to ask for a check um to start building that relationship and making sure it's a good fit for yourself as well as them and then it's you know, cause you don't ever really meet someone for the first time and you're like, Hey, you want to write a check like today, right now, you know, and that's not really how no, it works. Yeah. I have, I haven't met one yet. I'm looking for them. I'm ready for that person <laughs> to wander into my life. But, right. Yeah. But I think that's almost kind of the misconception of fundraising in a lot of ways is that, especially in the early days, it's just all they're investing in you as a founder more so than a lot of, you know, other aspects of your business. And so they have to get to know you and you have to build that credibility with them and that trust. And that really comes with time and it comes with sending updates about the business and what you've been able to accomplish so that they're like, wow, I really want to back this person. I think they're going somewhere. And I really like what they're doing. I like the market size. I like all these other aspects, but it really starts with you um, as the co-founder or founder. Um, Well, so do you have any, uh, before we wrap up here, what's next for slow up? Uh, What can we expect to see coming out next? Yeah. What intergalactic combination. That's what's, that's what's next. (laughs) Nice. Uh, I love the ambition. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're, um, we're, we're really like kind of neck deep in, learning about retail right now. So we've got these, we're very focused on um, learning and growing in our backyard. So we're Brooklyn based. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it's uh, really valuable for me to be able to like roll out the front door and go check on the bars in a store and talk to people. How cool is it to see your bar in a store though? Dude, it is. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's like um, I invented a sports team and people are now wearing the Jersey. Right. It's like, <laughs> that's a funny uh, way of putting it. It's, but no, it's, it's, it's so cool and so fun. Um, so really, yeah, what's next is in the, in 
the New York metro market, we're going to be on more and more and more shelves. We're uh, also uh, launching some new exciting, the DUC business continues to rock and, and grow. And so we're really like working on buzz building in the New York metro market and just adding, adding doors and adding shelves. We have a, um, we're launching at Fairway, which for people who live in the city is a familiar familiar name, big win for us. Nice. Uh, we've got a big kind of multi-pronged promotional thing. We're doing our first like out of, this will also feel really cool in real life to go see like a poster on, right. the, on the sidewalk, but we're doing some, you know, a, a bunch of marketing and promotion around that launch. Um, so that's the, that's the most immediate one. And then uh, we also have some exciting, you know, to be announced chef collaborations. One of the cool things that we can do with our product that I think is, is really unique is we can take like a, a, a restaurant dish, like a, you know, iconic favorite dish at a familiar restaurant and turn it into a bar because, you know, we can treat it like a recipe, not like a formula. Right. right. Uh, so some cool. of those are, are rolling out. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. So what, um, final advice, I guess, do you have for any entrepreneurs kind of tuning in thinking about starting a business? You just got to jump into cold water. That's the, yeah. <laughs> I think that, you know, that's the, that's the big advice. Hard to, hard to feel, hard to feel prepared. And with a little bit of the benefit of hindsight, pretty impossible to be prepared unless you've done it before. Yeah. So just send it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the, the other thing that I think is really helping me stay like sturdy and joyful and connected to the rest of the team mm -hmm. is recognizing that like there's always another hill to climb another problem to solve that the problems shift and and grow or or shrink but they don't disappear right and so once you've once you've jumped in like recognizing that you just got to get comfortable in that like there's always another hill to climb i think if you spot. love the game whack-a-mole you'll be a really great entrepreneur <laughs> totally. Or if you if you got a real like stick your fingers in the dike, keep the flood at bay uh, right. inclination. Totally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Leland, for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time and sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.